32 counties. United by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. Very smart people today. May I say. <laughs> it's just us. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we go on, obviously, we have to put in our little uh, Patreon plea. So get those thumbs uh, tapping onto patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. Sign up for little extra bits and bobs, like a little Sunday soothe once in a while or you know, some gorge extra bits that you just don't know what they're going to be yet. So if you want in, get in. Uh, thank you to the Irish Examiner for highlighting United Ireland as a podcast to listen to on this seemingly endless um, St. Patrick's festivities. Uh, it's kind of the way Pride went from a weekend to like, happy Pride month. Be like, happy St. Patrick's month. Like, it's outrageously delicious. Yes, and there's lots of things on and places buzzing around the country and I'm digging all the crazed, surrealist floats in Irish towns and the tourists are around and it's all feeling quite manic, but also... Mm, yes, I would, I would agree. But I, I lean into the manic. Um, well, we'll discuss some of that. Maybe, uh, but <laughs> but this week's question is what is is about why is Ireland experiencing a new Celtic revival? Or is Ireland experiencing a new Celtic revival? We're going to discuss um, the undercurrent of a different kind of um, cultural identity that's emerging. Uh, Tis the season for Irishness. But what is actually happening um, in terms of how those things have shifted and why uh, in culture, in society, in politics, little, small, little, small, little topic. Small little question. You did a small little deep dive into this for the New York Times this week, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. So it's kind of, we're, we're thinking a lot about that and we're going to chat about the new Celtic revival. Uh, this would be a good point to drop in some Anya. Okay, Andrea, what's the state of the nation? Oh, no, no, it's not a great state of the nation, um, obviously, because the world is burning. Uh, God, that's very depressing. However, the number, highest number of people in hospital in Ireland with COVID has happened in a year, I think. Um, so the cases are rampaging through. Um, obviously, it was always going to be really high after the bank holiday weekend. Um so, yeah, it's not going in a good way. And also, China reported its first COVID deaths in a year. Two people died, which is pretty good going. Um, but we but probably might, we might put a, Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, we might, we might put a little asterisk beside that. <laughs> um, but that's the news. And that's what they said. So nobody lies in this world. Uh, on the plus side, while that's happening, tourism has restarted in New Zealand. They're starting to open their borders. So anyone who wanted to live their Lord of the Rings lives could hit the New Zealand tourism vibes. And uh, house prices are up again, 15% over the year. I mean, just when you thought they couldn't go any higher. And like somebody, who was it? Oh my God, it was absolutely, oh, 
Joe Biden was congratulating Michal Martin for his leadership and skills in managing the housing crisis. <laughs> or Nancy Pelosi or something. Yeah, that was just like, feed them this line direct from... <laughs> Um, well done on what you've done with the housing crisis. It's really showing signs of improvement. <laughs> Can I say two things about your state of the nation? Okay. Uh, first of all, it really does feel like everyone has COVID right now, like cases all over the place. You can kind of feel that other, the wave is here, but obviously it's totally different, right? Because it's different so variants that people are getting and people are vaccinated. Yeah. So it's be one, I guess, like, it'll be interesting to see what this kind of phase of a wave is like or what the outcome is, because that'll probably lay the groundwork for how we just live with, live with the virus. Yeah. And then on the house prices thing, like, <laughs> actually, no, I'm just like, because I just think it's, it's what is going to happen, like how much more can people get squeezed? Um, and well, actually, point- the ESRI did a report and said that everything is going to get much more expensive for the next two years. They said it was only going to be a couple of months, but they've abandoned that report and are now saying strap in for two years of pricey bitch life. Yeah, Ooh, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to pan out when people just literally cannot afford everything. Um but let's move away from the economic sphere and into the cultural and social one in modern Ireland. Uh, it's time to talk about the Celtic revival. So in recent years, let's say from the crash and recession outward, this is a very simplistic narrative the um the vibe shift has occurred we in have, Ireland. We only have an hour <laughs> to, to look at the Celtic revival, but let's get... But across Irish culture, you know, we are witnessing this kind of new Celtic revival that has many jumbled up origins, but I suppose is manifesting in loads of different facets of culture across visual art and design and music and fashion and all that kind of stuff. So on this St. Patrick's Festival, on never-ending St. Patrick's Week episode, um, we're going to discuss why this is happening and where it's happening and what it means. It's weird. Can we, can we just say on that that it is the last day of the festival? So we are in a, a very celebratory recovery mode. Yes. Um, celebratory reflections. Okay. I think. It's it's this is a a topic um that I'm very interested in and kind of observing you know cultural shifts and shifts in culture uh, over the past let's say fifteen years I think um and it's become very clear to me that loads and loads of different things are coalescing that have loads of different origins that are contributing to the formation of a contemporary Irish identity and a rooting back to something um, much further in the past to kind of for people to hang their hats on and give meaning and also a kind of shedding of any shame around uh, certain aspects of Irish identity, in particular the Irish language, I think, and how those changes within people and those changes in society are contributing to what could be characterised as a new Celtic revival. And I suppose once you kind of start to see things through that lens, uh, loads of other stuff comes up in terms of how that cultural shift is moving politics, how it is 
kind of creating a different type of um, assertiveness within Irish identity, um, how it dovetails in some ways with nationalism and how um, it also rejects nationalism and goes back to something more universal or whatever. So I wrote a piece this week for the New York Times um, examining what was happening uh, particularly paying attention to kind of music with kneecap and Irish language cinema with on Colleen Kuhn and then the more broader aspects of the language and how people are becoming more open towards it um, with Mancon McGann and just that idea that obviously, you know, Irishness, like traditional almost Irishness, you know, has uh, never gone away I suppose but I think up until uh, the crash there was a different kind of outlook that kind of muddled um, cultural identity uh, that was very global that was very capitalistic that was very um, rooted in ostentatiousness, ostentatiousness and consumer capitalism and looking outward and not inward and all that kind of stuff and obviously that has changed and we're seeing this kind of different um, shift in Irish culture, I suppose. And, and the piece that I was writing was primarily about how the Irish language is becoming more centred in Irish popular culture now, which is different. Like there have been various aspects of that occurring all the time, but something else is kind of surging up now. Um, and so that that I think that is kind of broadly the assessment of what, you know, it's quite nebulous of what the Celtic revival is, but obviously there are various origins and then how it crops up. And then, you know, what does that mean? What do you think about this topic overall, Andrea? Is this something that you're noticing? I love, I love when you ask me those questions when I'm really hungover. I'm like, oh God, what do I think? <laughs> I think it's great. <laughs> but do you think I it's, do do you think it's happening? Think? It's definitely happening. What I think is, I think like you said about the um, the boom and all that shit, we were not, I suppose, confident in ourselves and uh, almost like not ashamed of, we, we didn't have the confidence in being Irish that it was enough, that we were kind of looking like to a more, glo- not global, but like cosmopolitan vibe and that we wanted to be like different places. And the more, I think, and also we had governments who were kind of bringing us away from a traditional Irish thing that was more Tory vibes and kind of moving away from traditional Irish things that we were, we wanted to be like other countries more so. And there seems to be like a confidence coming back as like people center Irish traditions and like the likes of other voices that is focused on Irishness so much that you have these leaders of contemporary culture bringing people along and the more they discover and get into it, the more they realise that it's absolutely whopper. Mm. I think like the, the boom is an interesting, the Celtic Tiger boom is an interesting touchstone for things that felt kind of placeless or whatever. It's also really like, I find it kind of difficult sometimes to talk about this because it got, uh, without using terminology that people may s- feel that's like it's nationalistic or exclusionary or it's about like Irish identity being this one thing, primarily white 
and born in Ireland or whatever, or like generationally Irish. And I don't think that's what it's about Ooh. at all. Um, it, it absolutely not. Um, in fact, um, but I think that when the crash happened, so this is my kind of thoughts on the origins of it. Um, I think when the crash happened, uh, obviously it was a massive existential uh, moment as well as all of the other things that it was like all of the ins- institutions and you know fantasies and hallucinations about wealth and um you know uh goods a lot actually like like consumer goods kind of evaporated mm. and obviously so much of that stuff was so vacuous even though it's kind of nice to be like you know be fake rich and buy loads of shit. Like the meaning in that obviously didn't stick. And what you had during the 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 crash and the ensuing recession and the terrible austerity policies, what was happening simultaneously was a different kind of culture was emerging that was actually from the ground up. It was much more organic. Um, and a lot of it was rooted in people essentially Uh, losing their jobs and pursuing passions instead or trying to make a go of something that they always wanted to do because you kind of nothing to lose. And we're seeing a bit of that right now with the great resignation uh, outcome of of the pandemic. And that inevitably created more um, authentic, that term, but it it did create more authentic cultural activity and stuff that wasn't based around money and Champagne that w- coming out with fireworks. Exactly. <laughs> it wasn't based around that. It wasn't based around um, status or, or, or and, and, and it, the values changed. And you had, obviously, you had a boom in DIY culture. You had a boom in underground uh, club culture. You had a boom in kind of spoken word culture, uh, kind of fringe theatre culture. And also Irish food, you know, like contemporary Irish cuisine was effectively invented during uh, the recession in its current form. Um, And all of that kind of also coalesced with uh, when, when, you know, the damage of austerity was was done. You know, there was this other moment in in 2016 when you had the 1916 centenary, which kind of accidentally engaged the public in this year long, you know, reflective existential conversation and and engagement and personal search around the meaning of republicanism, you know, the, the echo of the rising, what, you know, what we had come to be a hundred years later, what our failings were, and how we could move forward and cherishing all the children of equally, all of this kind of stuff, like all this messaging, all this thought, all these cultural events, all this political discourse and social discourse around those kind of values, you know, the, the, and the proclamation as this text, that's like a text of values and aspirations. And obviously that was also dropped in between the two referendums as well, where the political sphere in electoral politics kind of became irrelevant and the politics was being done um, by people. And you just, I just kind of started seeing all the, like the different things like kind of pop up, like um, literally actually like the pop-up Gwaeltuk movement and this kind of greater desire to root in something that wasn't superficial, that wasn't about, you know, 
doing supermarket sweep around Brown Thomas or whatever, or that wasn't about like flying to New York to do your Christmas shopping or whatever. And it was actually about looking deeper beyond the traditional architecture of Irish identity that has been so blighted by um, Catholicism, by colonialism and capitalism and looking at something else. You know, what actually grinds us? Uh, what is this place about? Why? And also this obviously intersects with um, environmental movements, like how do we protect the land? What food culture had meaning to us? How do we bring that back? What are the places that we want to preserve? What are the things that actually are deeper than, um, you know, the shit that everyone else is doing around the world? And I suppose at the same time, the Fine Gael era that was coming in in 2011 was intent on really, really regressive, stupid and destructive economic policies that would begin a process of homogeny in cities and stuff like that and really kind of anonymous development and all that kind of shit. But the a lot of people seem to be countering that with this more kind of, you know, rough and ready approach to how our contemporary identity would be formed and bolstered by immigration and blended with new identities and trying to shed the bullshit of the past, the struggle of the recession and austerity and emerge with something else. And I guess like as well as that, so many people, younger, younger generations, I guess, don't carry all of the as much the legacy of shame around um, cultural identity and around the language in particular, um, you know, which is, was, is, is a legacy of colonialism, obviously, because the Irish language was seen as, you know, a marker of poverty and English was seen as a marker of, of opportunity. And that continued all the way into how Irish was designed so badly in the school curriculum and how people just derided it for so long or just saw it as totally useless and incompatible with modern life and all that kind of stuff. And that just changed. I think the crash really changed that. Do you think that people's desire for change now is making them focus back on what was we had was good? Yeah. I, it all. Yeah, I think it is about that that kind of values thing. And I think that that's why there's such animosity towards a party like Fine Gael, because I don't think how, how our values emerge in around the referendum era, I think are really, really important to people. And I think that that era has had knock on effects that aren't just about the legislation that came from them. I think, you know, openness, vulnerability, generosity, um, you know, centering people's experiences, listening to people, all that kind of stuff. Like that's so different to what the national characteristics of discourse had been in the 20th century, which were around shame, don't fucking talk about anything, say nothing, you know, like secrecy, stigmas, oppression, repression, like a lot of that stuff when, you know, capitalism collapsed uh, during the crash. So that kind of lost the, those certainties I really feel that the the referendum era and obviously the collapse of the moral authority of the Catholic Church before it, uh, which also kind of allowed it to occur, has 
moved people to almost be different in how they interact. And I think that when you're looking for, when you want something real and when you're looking for something to hang on your hat on that isn't about wealth, um, then you start to look at what was there and what we had, yeah. But also there seems to be, like, it isn't just about going, looking back to, like, traditional things. It mm. is, like, changing that to a modern way, but, like, taking the heritage into it. So, like, it's not, like, in politics, uh, like, traditional nationalism. It's, like, a, something different. In music, it's putting a, a, a modern like edge on it and art it's making it your own so it's like it it's all modernizing it but not going back to being like well this is what it was so it's kind of taking those elements and bringing them forward totally and that's what i find so interesting about it because it's not this like puritanical um regressive nostalgia that has all these rules about like how you fucking weave baskets or sit at a loom or something you're so right it's this pulling it forward into the contemporary world where then things are blended. And that is so exciting, obviously, you know, much more exciting than, you know, the reemergence of a, you know, traditional movement or ideas that are actually stuck in the past yeah. or that have ver are very regimented. And I think that, you know, that's something that the Irish language has obviously you know, kind of struggled with in some ways, like the pe people's perception that it's like this purest kind of, you know, activity. And and yet we know that that's not the case and, and, and it's always been evolving and always been um, open. But I guess people didn't feel like they had access to exploring that or even take, taking ownership of it themselves, even um, no matter what their identities were, if they live on this island. But then I guess like, go on. Where do you think it's going? Where do you think it's going forwardly? Well, I think like to look at where it's happening first of all, I think is is really interesting um, because the it's so plentiful and diverse, and it's also really fragmented. So when you look at something like the Irish, and it's so many different things feed into it. So like when you look at the, you know, what you could kind of say clichedly say like as the Irish folk re revival across folk music, traditional music, finding new audiences, you know, everything from the very specific um, music and performances and live performances of the gloaming, going into Lancome, going into the Merry Wallopers and S Scratch and John Francis Flynn and Landless and all these kind of... There was a band on uh, The Late Late Show who were traditionally Irish and Persian, so half Irish, half Persian, doing traditional music, which is fab. Deadly into it. Love but, to know their name. <laughs> but that 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 is happening. But then also what's happening is elements of traditional music are also going into genres that wouldn't perceivably be um, framed as that. Like I think Saint Sister is an amazing manifestation of so many different genres and, and, and styles. And in it, you can, I mean, obviously the harp is there, but like you're having this bleed from, you know, harp and traditional rhythms into, into, electronic music into so you know into that kind of like traditional harmonies but actually they sound super contemporary and all of that blend and mix is happening and it can be quite hard to go 
to point a finger at something and go, that's it. That's the Celtic revival in music or whatever. It's more of a, a patchwork of stuff. And also, you know, accent. Um, I think it was Dean Van Nugan who had this piece a while ago on regionalism and Irish hip hop and like the importance of place. And I think we're seeing that so much more in in how people are claiming their accents, um, all accents across all types of, uh, of music, I guess, particularly in hip hop. And when you look at, um, like when you, when you look at how that, that is manifesting in the drill scene, when you look at how it's happening across like the, uh, like Irish language and Irish words dropping into everything from like Africa or Denise Chyla or, um, fucking strange boy opening his record with Moya Doherty. You know, there's so so much. Um, there's so much. Just all of it. All these little signals are kind of like popping into different aspects of that music, and then you like obviously the Irish language. I just feel how people's attitudes towards it has shifted. You know, from let's say when I was a teenager in my twenties to people just barely certainly in Dublin, like barely even mentioning or thinking about it. it was such a marginal thing. It was a thing that was like very relegated to Gaelgors or Cunran Gaelga or a couple of little pockets where the language was, uh, or the Gael school kind of infrastructure where it was kind of, you know, daily. And to then coming, like when you look at the enthusiasm that greeted Mancon's work and how open and ready and interested people are to having the language as a lens that connects you to the land and that connects you to um the, the meaning you know the meaning of of how how we're rooted in this place um and obviously the popularity of kneecap not just here but in um, England and Scotland and then I really see it across film as well obviously there have been Irish language films um you know over the decades of course um but we're now kind of seeing a wave in a way that kind of didn't exist before, primarily actually due to TG Cahar's um, funding scheme, Sinekar. So, you know, Aracht, Fusca, Ancalin Kuhn, which is an astonishing film. And then you also have like an entity like Cartoon Saloon, which tells these Irish stories with this Irish aesthetic that kind of didn't really exist um, and is so rooted in in myth, in identity, but again, is also taking from, you know, animation globally. Um, you know, there's all these different things in the mix that weren't necessarily so 20 years ago. What are you seeing across fashion and design and illustration and things like that, like, and, and visual art? Can you see that kind of aesthetic emerging? Yes. Or even references to identity <laughs> that maybe previously were very global or something. Um, I think ev like people are definitely incorporating it into their, into their illustrations and like the likes of Heafy and Fatty doing all kind of like Irish history books or uh, everything's really kind of not in jokes for Irish people, but like it's kind of like the culture that is here is being referenced in these pieces as mm. well. And then I suppose internationally with uh, fashion, the likes of Simone Rasha and Richard Malone, who would always reference back their Irish heritage and like Richard Malone in particular about his Wexford roots and his granny in Wexford. And um, that's all coming out in a really modern 
way in what he's turning out. But like, again, it's it's taking the elements, but making them really forward thinking and modern. Yeah. And Robin Lynch as well. Like their new collection with all the scans of the old dub jerseys and things like that, like and the the Airtel or T Airtel jumpers before, which were so amazing. (laughs) So, yeah, I think you're so right. That's such an interesting point, Andrea, that it's the culture the the that is being referenced the culture that exists in Ireland that is being referenced across the board by but like yeah I would love to see it that like the culture starts it but then it becomes kind of the how we survive I suppose in ways we do things that are intrinsically Irish so that we become kind of independent and non-reliant outside of ourselves mm. and I suppose that goes to like things like food sovereignty and like our supply chains and that the culture proves that we can do it and why and then that we start being more and more open to being confident in ourselves and providing for ourselves yeah we can provide our entertainment our fashion our illustration we should be able to provide our day-to-day living yeah and I think that that um desire is is really dominant actually right now in society like even and obviously it dovetails with um environmental movements and 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 you know and wars yeah and <laughs> yeah exactly and yeah. um you know the biodiversity crisis and stuff but you are seeing people kind of returning to um that self-sufficiency uh yeah okay maybe some of it is like half prepper half privilege or whatever but like it it is happening in a way that yeah. that um it hasn't been happening before that's obviously a global phenomenon but i guess you know global movements have local um contexts and also local methods and local ways of doing things and if you you know or the even it like in food culture with old ways of cooking um you know, emerging back in and, and more interest in uh, what was there and what was lost and how to bring that back. And I think then, so broadly then it's like, what does this mean? Like, is this just a a phase that we're in or does it actually have a much more profound and deeper meaning? And I would say it's definitely the latter because I think it's no accident that all of this is occurring at a time when um, the political system kind of one of its its biggest failing like the the government's biggest failing uh which has been for some time people talk about this all the time they say they're just so disconnected they just mm. don't get it mm. like and and that what that's actually saying is the people in charge do not understand the people they're meant to represent the people in charge are not uh imbued with the same values, gestures, ideas uh, about the potential of this country. And then you have this other entity dropping in in terms of Sinn Féin, you know, which is nationalist and uh, is, is, is talking about this massive narrative about the future of the country in terms of uniting the island and it's no accident that as this cultural shift is occurring, that that's then what's being mirrored in the political sphere. Because the party, through accident or design, 
that can most embody the culture of the day is the one that ends up in power. And like in, you know, in Fine Gael's time, in Fine Fall's time, you know, they had a connect, you know, they're a populist party too. You know, they had a connection to um, the dominant cultural uh, vibe of, of their time, which was, you know, an oppressive Catholic state, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, where corruption was kind of like, well, you know, I guess everyone's at it or, uh, you know, and that, that was their, that was their space and it's primarily rooted around power and it very much mirrors the kind of, um, you know, oddness, I suppose, of um, the, you know, quasi-theocracy that we are existing in. And when Fine Gael dropped in, you know, in the, in the crash emergency and in the recession emergency, you know, that was very much about them, you know, being kind of, you know, selling the garment, like just being these kind of marketeers of neoliberalism that we'll sort things out. We have suits. We're good at the numbers. We can do this, blah, blah, blah. And obviously, you know, the other main reason that they came to power is because they just weren't Fianna Fáil. But what you have now is this other entity that for years, even though all of these cultural shifts were uh, occurring, that would obviously speak to this party in Sinn Féin being the next one in power, uh, all of that stuff being kind of ignored in, in, the, in the political analysis a lot of the time. But there now happened to be the party that best represents this thing that's going on more broadly in society. And but in I culture, also think, like the likes of like the social democrats are reflecting the empathy and the social justice and the cause related stuff as well. Yeah, so I don't think it's just a nationalism kind of thing. Like, I think obviously the change people want change, um, and it's who's promising change and who can deliver it. Yeah, I I think that's totally true, and I also think that because Sinn Fein have this other green streak through them as well that they mm. can lay claim to that other parties can't, that means that they're connecting mm. with the kind of unconscious um, cultural or, or sometimes very conscious cultural changes and social changes that are occurring. And it becomes very, very difficult then for an entity like Fine Gael, which for a lot of people, particularly young people, feels completely culturally at odds um, with how people are, how they talk, mm. how they act, what they do, what they're into, what their values are. That then becomes a total struggle for them to engage when people have changed and when the culture has changed and when the desires that people have and the things that they imagine for themselves in this place that relate to that change, uh, you know, it, it, it just becomes very hard for Fine Gael to connect with that because, because they're not in their time. Do you know what I mean? Because mm. this time is is speaking to something else. So, yeah. So that that's that's the vibe. I think it's a a conversation that is kind of missing from broader society and culture. That that is what is happening, and I think people can feel it. They can feel whatever their background or their country of origin or ethnicity or um, you know gender identification or sexuality or religion or um, social class maybe or you know all of that kind of stuff I think people of all kinds can really feel that that is actually simultaneously happening at, while we're living in this weird you know dystopic neoliberal 
madness that Fine Gael, uh, designed. Um, so it, it, I just find it really, really fascinating that that's the soup that's happening. And I think that it's going to have massive social and political ramifications because cultural movements and, and how people change and, and what all of the chaos of the past 15 years actually manifests as in Ireland's case is really quite different uh, to how it's manifested elsewhere um, in terms of more reactionary politics or right-wing politics or um, the, the, or, or apathy, you know, uh, as we see in the UK. <laughs> so that's the new Celtic revival. Um, please let us know what you think about that on our socials and happy St. Patrick's year. <laughs> St. Patrick's year feels like a year. Jesus. <laughs> Now it's time for Get in the Sea. This week, Getting in the Sea is kind of um, a very upsetting one that is happening in this day of our Lord. Um, basically, Breathing Space is a, an accessible studio that does yoga and Pilates. And it's uh, about being not body positive, but body neutral. No diet talk. It's uh, yoga for all sizes. It's all um, yoga classes for people wheelchair users it's um kind of just pushing the boundary of what it means to move your body and as part of that they had a drag queen story hour and it was with Ada and on the day it was like drag queen story hours when loads of kids come in and they learn about empathy and pronouns and like um diversity etc and through stories and on the day that people turned up and were accusing the organizers of sexually abusing their the children and grooming the children because they were in a space with a drag queen learning about things like this. So it just really is quite upsetting. They then went onto their social channels and left reviews and remarks saying similar that we are we always think that we've moved so much forward and are so accepting and like it, it really felt like we'd moved forward with the mother th- uh, tent at the Patrick's Day Festival the other night it was just so great to see a very queer space on the main lineup of St. Patrick's Day Festival and then to be hit with stuff like that happening so I just think that can get into absolute sea. Totally I always think as well of those things like it's the people accusing somebody of that who are thinking it. So mm. like, I'm always just like, why the fuck would you come to that conclusion? What is going on in your head and in your mind that, that you actually are thinking about children being sexualized or something when that is absolutely not happening at all? Yeah. So it's on. See, get in. Now it's time for It's Bananas. Anybody who's been out this weekend or recently, I think, um, will notice how difficult it is to get home. And there's been definitely a movement towards people avoiding town and not coming into town because it is impossible to get taxis. Like, it seems that there is not such a thing. People are um, walking home. Your options now seem to be go to town and walk all the way home or just don't bother going to town. And I think we are... Since the pandemic, uh, the city centres, well, way before this, the pandemic, but the city centres being faced with so many issues and 
about how to get people into town and with so much um, derelict buildings, uh, independent shops not being able to afford to be in the city anymore, entertainment being pushed outside of the city. The, the reasons to go to the city are becoming less and less. And this taxi one is a, is a really big one. And I think the powers that be who are in charge of shaping our city and how it works need to really start thinking not just about like surface things they can do to bring people back into the city, but making the city work again and um, making it accessible and making it be people be able to get home from town. Yeah. And it's also just unsafe. If you're um, just yeah. hanging around waiting for a cab like three o'clock in the morning or on your own. Yeah. Or walking the streets to get home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now it's time for our fave bits. Andrea, tell me all your favorite bits. My fave bits this week are... Uh, I had too many DJs down, but it actually is Index in general. I just am in awe of the joy that it brings. It's just such a fun place to be and really well kitted out. And um, yeah, here's to more of this kind of carry on going forward. Uh, Also, I was stuck in my mind because don't you know when you go to a club and when you go to a club, you have to order whatever. Well, you don't have to order, but the drinks you order either make you kind of feel a bit like sugary or heavy or whatever. I can never get the club drink right. And it just really upset me that you can't get White Claw in clubs a bit more because it's the perfect clubbing drink. Um, sparkling water with a hint of like flavor of cherry. Delicious. So they said they're going to start getting it in clubs. It's in Centerpoint, but I'd love to see it in Index. So please do that. And also the murmurings that there's a, a watermelon white claw on the way. Can I hear someone say delicious? Because I'm saying it. I, did, I thought there already was one. No? Not in Ireland. Oh, uh, yeah. I may have had it somewhere else. Delicious. Yeah, delicious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also delicious. Okay. So I had a coddle dinner party the other night because nobody had had coddle before. And I think this fits in very well with our Celtic revival of <laughs> the poverty food of coddle being celebrated and uh, put on maybe a little bit of a, what are those things called? Pedestals? Pedestal. Coddlestall? <laughs> Coddlestall. It's just the most delicious food. I'm obsessed with coddle in general. No, 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 no. no. Every single person, there was like 10 people and they all loved it and they'd never had coddle before. So I know, maybe, like, listen, you are a lifelong coddle advocate. I love it. Uh, I, it's just not my bag. I, I just don't. I'm just, no, no. But you love breakfast meat. Well, I don't eat it. So anymore. Okay, fine. <laughs> that would be a good enough reason. But then this is not my fave bit is uh, Nigella then tweeted in the spirit of our Patrick's Day uh, recipe to coddle. And it was done in an oven. And the sausages were browned. Get a grip. Stop trying to make coddle more acceptable to naysayers who can't get their head around the fact that a sausage might be boiled and not co- discoloured to a different level. Just like, I just cannot, I cannot do the the pasty sausage Why thing. though? It's so bananas. Like, it's literally just, anyway, it's your head. Anyway, I say no <laughs> to Nigella's coddle. Absolutely not. It is boiled and it is white and it is delicious. 
um, full of white pepper. Oh, delish. And then, very in keeping with this whole subject, uh, James Cobb's new uh, podcast, What Did You Eat This Week? Like, I love nothing more than talking about food. So imagine a podcast that just talks about people talking about food. Sign me up. Delicious. Also, the jingle is amazing. Chloe Agnew singing it like he's a guy. Yeah. Um, it's fab. What are yours? My fave bits, uh, Drive to Survive season four. Obviously, I've watched it all already. Um, I just love Drive. I love, I know this is so, maybe it's not strange, but Chris Horner, the team principal of Red Bull. I just love him so much. I just really think he's great <laughs> and I love that he's married to a Spice Girl as well I just feel like that's cool you know mm-hmm. racing dude Jerry Halliwell uh, vibes anyway it's great uh, so if you haven't caught up on it obviously do it I did so remember somebody calling you know, the Real Housewives of Grand Prix the other day <laughs> oh it's like the bitchiest most drama filled show ever Um, yeah it's it's great. The drama is brilliant and it's so well produced. Um, remember I was talking about somebody somewhere that I heard it was amazing. I was going to watch yeah. it and you were slagging me for putting in my fave bits. Well, Andrea, <laughs> I watched it all um, and it is just so great. If you're looking for a heartwarming, tender, moving, funny, gorgeous, beautiful drama, comedy drama kind of dramedy, um, this is really good somebody somewhere it's on sky comedy bridget everett is going to win all the awards uh and it's it's just beautiful and the episodes are short they're like a tv half hour so like 26 27 minutes um i don't know why i put this in my fave bits because i really didn't like it but i'm going to mention it anyway i went to see sean baker's new film red rocket sean baker of florida project and tangerine fame and I don't know. I was really excited to see it. I saw that Rex Ryan, the lead, had won the Independent Spirit Award. And I was like, okay, for Best Actor. And I was like, I'm really looking forward to this. It's going to be great. It is fucking not good. And it's really annoying. It's one of those films that you're like, how did this idea get over the line with nobody going, whoa, hang on a second. Um, It's just like it just gave me a bad feeling about his filmmaking and it's made me question his other films and the type of subjects that he focuses on. And so there you go. That's a disappointment. Um, another film that it features in your five bits. I know. I don't know why I put it in there. Dragging our joy. Okay. No. Okay. Well, the Adam project uh, on Netflix, I enjoyed love a good time travel film. Um, Sean Levi, who made, the Adam Project is behind one of my faves, Free Guy. Guess what I did? I unsubscribed from Netflix. Oh, wow. Why so? Because I don't watch it. And I was like, I'm not signing up to this anymore. And now TV. Be gone. I'm, I'm going mm. in. Insular. Going to read. Yeah. Eventually. Deadly. Okay. Um, well, I enjoyed The Adam Project. It's a decent pseudo Spielbergian kids time travel film with some funny scenes a little bit of a muddled plot but I enjoyed it and my final fave bit is of course the St. Patrick's Festival setup that was at Collins Barks oh it was so brilliant I went on Wednesday night Collins Barks just down by 
down by the Liffey there uh, in Dublin City. And it was just, there was so much good stuff on the tunes, the bands, the cabaret, um, the mother club night in the massive Spiegel tent. Um, the only thing it that's proved to me is that there is a market for mother to be in a print works venue. Yes, 100%. Agree. Um, but it was just really great. So well done to everyone who was organizing that and performing at it. And yeah, it was just so funny. You know, there's so many like pandemic emergence moments where you go to something and you're not really thinking it through. And then you arrive there and you're like, oh, I'm like at a festival. <laughs> and that hasn't happened in a couple of years. Uh, so it was really nice to kind of feel that energy again. Now it's time for Book of the Week. Book of the Week. Book of the week this week. It's the return of Butt Magazine. Uh, Butt Magazine, seminal gay publication uh, between 2001-2011. I think it ran for like 10 years and then it was wound up. The editor went on to, or one of the editors went on to, or maybe both of them did. They established Fantastic Man, uh, that mag. Um, but it's Bottega Veneta have brought it back. They funded its um, re-emergence. Wow. And it's, yeah, and it's really, really... That's a bizarre really brand choice, is it? I don't know. I guess Book Magazine was a real, like... It was kind of like a hipster, hipster fashion, queer, But like gay Bottega boy. Veneta is not really a query brand. I don't know. Am I wrong? Um, I don't know. I guess, who's the creative director there now? Can't remember. Damn. Um, they're behind it anyway to because obviously they just saw it as yeah, an opportunity, a cool thing to bring back. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's it's one of those kind of nice examples of like, ah, oh, a brand is actually doing something that isn't gross or like. To, there's a couple of uh, Bottega Veneta ads in it. I think there's two ads in it, but that's it. And you're like, oh, brill! If you were actually, if people were actually spending money on cultural stuff all the time and creative stuff, not with their having to have their brand splashed all over the front of a venue or some bullshit like that and um, people would respond when much better and there would actually be more cool shit it's matthew blazy who's the creative director all right um so yeah but magazine is back issue 30 and uh covered cover it's really really great as per usual so it's good to have that back now, this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan and Costway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Someone was asking us that on, twi- on uh, Twitter the other day. And um, Sarah Fox did all of our design. Andrea, speaking of the LTCR, what's the tuna chicken roll this week? This week's tuna chicken roll came from Mother on Wednesday night in the St. Patrick's Day never-ending festival. Were you there? Yeah. I was there as well. How didn't I see you? I have no idea. <laughs> well it was great to hang out I was, I was there for the whole night from 7 till half 10 um, it's Tribute by Bob Sinclair it's a vibe and it's a positive uh, number that we're going to live our lives for the next week probably should have done something a bit more Celtic but look we're here now I've been Una Mullally I've been Andrea Horan this has been United Ireland and that was the new Celtic Revival <laughs> Welcome to this tribute tonight. This is a very special night where we give a tribute to the love and soul of music. 
the happiness of music. You here with my man, Mr. Michael Robinson. I'm your MC, Ron Carroll. And tonight is a night where we share this love together. We flow together. We groove together. Yeah. 
feel good together. It's all right. Tonight it doesn't matter what you're wearing, what you got on. It doesn't matter. It's about that music. If it's love that you're feeling, we can do this thing together. Because here we go again. You know the world has gone completely crazy. And you know in this world today, you can't even be lazy. But sometimes we need some air to get this weight off our shoulders. You know what I'm saying? Let's make this love last tonight. Let's make it feel all right. Do you feel all right? Let's do it. Come on. Good night, y'all.